0: Hello and welcome to episode 39 of The Garden Log with me, Ben Dark. I am a gardener and I'm also a podcaster. You are listening to The Fruit of Those Two Seeds. This week, I am talking about lawns, not exclusively, but I do get into the roots and the science of things. I'm also talking about design decisions and why it's best to make them on a Monday morning. I'm talking about managing a slipway between woodland and cottage garden style planting. An exciting problem to have. And then there is a little bit about tree ferns, how I've been caring for them so far this year and what I plan to do to toughen them up for the long night ahead. We are still in those lazy last days of summer. It's mid-August as I speak to you now an indolent time of year. But winter is waiting in the wings, and it's time that the garden and myself started preparing for it. Right, that's enough about time's inevitable march. Let's get on and listen to episode 39 of The Garden Log. the week in gardening this week started with a bit of a change a change in the garden I came in after a weekend away a weekend that was like all good weekends full of profound and beautiful moments the kind of weekend that makes you a better person and I came back into the garden and I thought I need to transfer some of this into the garden itself So I went to an area that has always niggled at the back of my mind as being wrong. It's an area on the edge of the rockery that has this small and incredibly pointless mound of grass. And the mound of grass is at an awkward angle to the rest of the large bed. And what this mound of grass does is get in the way of everything. It gets in the way of the ride on mower, primarily. It also gets in the way of an aesthetic appreciation of the garden and it gets in the way of the the flow of the flower bed more generally. It's an ugly awkward nub of grass and every time I do the lawns I have to go back afterwards with a strimmer and strim it. And why am I doing this? What's the point? I decided it was time for it to go. So we dug it out, the turf was removed, it became part of the larger flower bed, And I have to say, it looks magnificent. I think there's a fairly high correlation between what the ride-on mower finds ugly and what the human eye finds ugly. Because the ride-on mower works in large, generous sweeps, it has no time for fussy, fiddly little bits. And the human eye tends to agree with it. Maybe if you were starting a new garden completely from scratch, you could plan it out with a ride-on mower. Attach a can of spray paint to the back and go in wild rampaging arcs and see, see what it tells you to do. It's an idea. Anyway, I think the, the principle is, is pretty general. That in a large garden, the various aspects of it should be large and generous themselves. Small things look mean and nitpicky in big gardens. This isn't just flower beds though it's particularly flower beds. I sometimes visit people to give advice on their gardens and often I find people who love lawn and I tell them why are your flower beds so small and they say well we wanted to have as much grass as possible because we like to to see the the swathe of green and actually once you explain that the, the lawn will almost seem bigger if it seems more natural and that what this little awkward flower bed is doing is, is breaking your eye, jarring it, making it hurt and taking it away from the, the majesty of your lawn, if you made the flower bed bigger and more natural flowing to the shape of the land or the shape of the boundaries then your lawn will seem more comfortable in itself and comfortable people, confident people, I think appear bigger. I should say that the small and fussy principle also attaches itself to lawn stripes. This week I did some of the lawn, the large lawn, with a pedestrian mower. I was trying to do some of that stripe art, that they're very good at some gardens. I think at Wisley, they're very, very good at doing artistic shapes in the grass. And I thought I'd have a little go at that, playing around, a bit of fun. And I found that on a large lawn, using a pedestrian mower to make the stripes gives you an effect that is more akin to corduroy than the the bold hoops of an exciting, exciting lawn. So there's a lesson for you. Make sure that the size of your roller matches the size of your grassed area. Anyway, I wasn't going to talk about stripes. The section that we've now dug out is an extension to the rockery. So we seeded it with some rocks and then gave it a layer of our ultra-high-grade, extremely well-filtered compost and I think it looks absolutely fantastic. The bare soil is not really soil, it's a mulch of dark, rich compost. It looks like someone has smashed a load of perfectly succulent chocolate cakes over it. I think it looks great and I don't know why because normally I like to see plants but I'm almost reluctant to plant this area up. I think it might be plant fatigue. It's been a long season and I have been fiddling and obsessing with green things for such a long time now that maybe my brain and my eyes are ready to just see some soil. I think it's probably an equivalent in early March when you're so sick of winter and seeing bare ground that you'll just want to see anything coming up even if it's the world's most noxious, toxic and deadly weed. That is to say, that was Monday. I extended an area of the flower bed. On Tuesday, I gave the tree ferns in the Triassic gardening a little bit more pampering. And I think the tree ferns this year have been one of the resounding successes. I don't know why, but I tend to talk a lot about the the failures, almost because I'm using this as an aid memoir. So I'll be able to go back and listen next year to, um, to the episodes as I go along and think, oh yes, I've made that mistake again but I I don't sometimes celebrate the successes and the tree ferns have done fantastically this year. Last year they stopped unfurling new fronds in around May and I think that's because I let them dry out and they just lost that hydraulic power to pump out and unroll almost to the stage where they froze half open some of the tendrils and just stayed that way until the winter. This year they are still chucking them out. They are still rolling out fronds like carpet from the back of a van. Part of this is because we've been watering them incredibly heavily with watering cans twice a week and feeding them a high nitrogen feed once a week as well, which I did on Tuesday. I've decided now though that this will be their last feed of the year. They've had a very good run of it. But now I think it's time to start toughening them up for winter. I don't want lots of new growth when we start to go into cold months. I want tough, grizzled, hardened growth. I should start thinking about this for myself as well. I should start thinking about toughening myself up for winter because it's on its way. Or maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I should start fattening myself up like a grizzly bear. Maybe I should start gorging on late summer salmon and berries from the hedgerows so that I have a good insulating layer for the winter to come. I don't know. What's your tactic for winter? Answers to The Garden Log podcast at gmail.com. Anyway, that was the day of Tuesday. I didn't just feed the tree ferns, I also did other bits and pieces. Quite a bit of watering actually. I know that the heat wave has officially broken now and that we have had some precipitation dropping onto our heads and onto our leaves but the ground's still fairly dry under there and plants that you've been watering for the summer will still need their water. Unfortunately the water seems to have come too late for some plants. Not really in the garden, we managed to get everything through I think. But driving around I see a lot of dead birch in the the motorway sidings and next to the roads. I think birch have suffered more than the other trees and a lot of them I don't think will come back. You can see them, take a look when you are next going on a train or in a car and you'll see these patches of, of russet brown where the birch used to be though we managed to not lose any plants to the drought, doesn't mean that our plants aren't dying all the time. On Wednesday I dealt with a few of these plants. These were some dahlias and some cosmos in the big long border and these plants I noticed were looking very wilted. So I went over to investigate and a similar thing had happened to both of them. They'd almost snapped completely off at the base. I don't know what happened. I don't know if it was wind or if it was a drunkard fell into the flower bed at some stage. But they'd severed the the plant as it came out of the soil. Now I'd noticed this wilting had been going on for about a week. I'd watered them a couple of times hoping that would help but it didn't. The amazing thing was that neither of them actually died completely. They were just barely hanging on to their roots by a few threads of xylem and phloem, but they still continued to be just about alive. It's amazing the resilience of these things. But this is to be a magnificent garden, not a nice garden, and therefore there isn't really room for plants that are just about alive. So I took them out. I left the daily tuber in the ground. I'll lift it when I lift the rest of them. The cosmos came out completely. Now the gap isn't too much of a problem because we have one last flush of colour to come in that border. The, the aster, Aster Novae Angliae Harrington's Pink, which I'm sure lots of you know, it's that rather shocking bright pink one. And that is going to fill in those gaps. It's not at the flowering stage yet. We're probably still a month away. But it's at the stage where it's sending out lots of the side shoots. It's bushing itself up, getting ready for that wonderful pink flush. And it also looks nice. I Sometimes asters foliage, I think, can be a bit dull. I always think of them as a dull green covered in mildew but Harrington's pink tends to be lighter, brighter, more vibrant green and far far less covered in mildew than many of the asters so it looks good in that space it looks like a plant that is a throwback from late May rather than mid-August oh that we were all so young looking on Thursday I started some planting and this is a tricky bit of planting It's an area that I was asked to plant up and it's a strange transitional area a liminal space they would call it in the world of psychogeography. It's the transition between woodland and cottage garden in the, the part of the garden that's very prone to the deer which also helps to restrict the plantings used. It's a bank that is covered in the most magnificent old hazels. Hazels that had been fairly heavily coppiced in the past and have now grown out into these wonderful arching forms. And these need to gel with the deer and with the planting beyond. I didn't want anything fussy. The the obvious deer-proof plant for shade is the hellebore. And I didn't want the hellebore because the hellebore is an architectural plant in itself. We already have a bank and some beautifully shaped trees. I didn't want other shapes and forms and spires or mounds contrasting with them. I just want a ground cover. So I've gone for a plant that many gardeners hate, but I like. I've gone for vinca. And I've chosen vinca minor the small-leaved and small-flowered version. And I've chosen the cultivar Gertrude Jekyll, which is very well-known and easily available. But the key thing about it is that it is the white-flowered form. And I think that that, which is evergreen and matte-forming, and it will just keep low to the ground, won't distract from the natural shape of the bank and the shape of the trees. And it will also let through snowdrops and small daffodils in the spring, which will be the spring colour. It's unfortunate that that bank would be absolutely perfect for native primroses in the spring. They'd look so good with the hazel, but the, um, the deer will eat them all. They love primroses. They are very, very tasty plants. Snowdrops they don't like, vinca they don't like, and daffodils they absolutely abhor. So that was Thursday. The plants aren't all in, I think I probably planted about 70 or 80 of them. They're only little 9cm pots. I'll get a similar amount planted again next week and then we'll let them form large colonies. And then it was Friday again. Amazing how the weeks rush away. At this time of year, people are often saying, well, there's not really much to do in the garden. But I find that I can't stop. I did some lawn work on Friday. The lawn contingent among you will be very pleased to hear this. Two, two discussions of lawn in one week. I think now that the grass is well recovered from its beating from the sun. We did irrigate and water a little and it never truly crisped up. My ground at home is amazingly crisped up and actually it went beyond the oh don't worry grass is a tough plant it'll recover stage and has gone to the yes you're going to have to reseed that all in the autumn stage but at work the the lawn generally survived and now it is growing again with the vigor of a convict released and given a chance to, to live life again but I'm slightly concerned about all of this new growth and about the time of the year so as we all know Autumn is the season of mellow mists and fruitfulness, and I do enjoy fruitfulness, and I do enjoy mellow mists, but to me mellow mists also signify fungal diseases. They signify a bit of warmth and a lot of moisture. I'm particularly concerned about red thread in the lawn, that little fungal disease that that you can tell by the the little pink-tinged strands within the grass and i think that one of the best ways to combat a fungal disease is to increase the airflow i think that's probably true of the fungal diseases of the human anatomy as well given that anyway the um The best way is to increase the airflow and I decided to scarify the lawn. So that's taking up some of the thatch, the bits of old grass that have fallen down and fallen to the bottom of the lawn and are now just there lying about. The equivalent of all the stuff that comes out on the hairbrush when you you brush your hair. And I wanted it lifted out so the air could get to the grass blades themselves. So I went over the whole thing with a scarifier. Our scarifier is a spinning wheel like a cylinder mower but instead of a cylinder it has a drum with little wires attached to it and it goes over the lawn and hoicks out dead grass and quite a few of the living grass blades as well but there's no harm in that. As I say it all increases airflow. If we're going to go back to talk about stripes you get the most amazing stripes when you scarify because striping comes from the grass lying down in different patterns and you get a better stripe the longer the grass. So if you roll the grass without actually cutting it off you get the most fantastic lines. That's a quick tip in case you find yourself facing a visit of the lawn committee at short notice. Anyway I scarified the lawn and I thought about feeding it because there is a school of thought that says that healthy grass is better able to resist attack from fungus. But in the end, I didn't feed it, because there's also a school of thought that says that new growth promoted by overfertilized grass is the most vulnerable growth to fungus. It's a blessing that we work in an industry so full of contradictions, Can you imagine treading a path where everything was laid out with no room for deviation or distraction? It also means that you can justify any decision you've made in the garden, be it the the complete 180 degrees wrong one, by saying, well, actually, sometimes it's better to do, and so on. So that was it. A week of ferns, of deer, of grass, and of planting. Within a year of ferns, deer, grass, and planting. It was a good week, but it's over now. In search of inspiration, I have this week... Crossed the channel not literally, metaphorically. I've crossed an imaginative channel. I've gone to the French garden media. I was thinking that I consume quite a bit of the British garden media. I read magazines and watch the occasional television programme, and I have a connection to various people on social media, but I don't really know much about what is going on in the rest of Europe. So I made a conscious decision to try and find a French gardening programme, the equivalent of Gardener's World for France. And I came across a wonderful chap called Jean-Philippe Tessier. And he is a landscape architect and television presenter. I think he's probably slightly from the Don school of television presenter, more than the Titchmarsh. He's the kind of television presenter who would boast about not owning a television. You get people like this. You sometimes come across landscape architects who boast about not having a garden, just having a landscape. I couldn't possibly intervene in such a domestic and fussy way. That sort of thing. Anyway, he's actually very good. And I found a lot of his programmes. He's got a series sort of like that Around the World in 80 Gardens, where he goes off to various great gardens in Europe. And I found the episode where he visits Blenheim Palace. And Blenheim, of course, is quite exciting for a French gardener. Because it's named after the Battle of Blenheim, a famous English victory against the French. And the whole iconography of the place, as they do make clear in the programme, is based around frank bashing. There are upturned fleur-de-lis on the, the columns being crushed by cannonballs. And there's a French cockerel being eaten by a lion. Anyway, he goes there to talk about the Capability Brown landscape. And there are various conversations with garden historians. Actually, three historians packed into half an hour. It's quite, quite academic. I liked it a lot. And there are lots of drone shots. Lovely shots from the drone of the landscape and the gardens. More shots of the formal terraces. The stuff put in by Monsieur Achel Duchamp in the 1900s than the the landscape itself, the brown landscape, because from a drone an English landscaped garden looks an awful lot like a very big field with a house set in it. I think this is quite interesting, it's something that I think needs more study, the impact on photography in garden styles and trends. I think people have studied it for fashion, how different trends in the, the development of film influenced the clothes of the period. But I'm sure, I'm sure it affects gardens. And I wonder if drones and the ease of seeing gardens from above now will lead to more symmetrical bedding style plantings. Things like hedges and and cut beds that look fantastic from the air. I don't know. Watch this space. Anyway there are lots of long shots like that. Lovely violin music. And there are lots of lots of these gardens. I think he's visited about 60 of them across Europe doing these programmes. If you are in the mood to hear someone talk to you in French, the website I watched it on had English subtitles. But sometimes you just want a man to speak French to you while you look at pictures of green and glowing landscapes. I'm sure there are better places to watch the programme. I don't know if you could buy a DVD or something. I watched it on a website called FloraTube.wordpress.com, which was fine but every 10 minutes or so they stuck in an advert which kind of broke you from your Gallic reverie. Hunt around on the internet, it's a very big place. Maybe you'll find Monsieur Jean-Philippe Dessier somewhere else. No other recommendations this week. If you've come across something interesting in the world of gardening or landscapes or anything really outside those windows of yours, then please do let me know about it. You can get in contact by email at thegardenlogpodcast at gmail.com. On Twitter, where I am gardenerdark. On Instagram, where I am at gardenerdark as well. I'm particularly interested in hearing slightly different voices, and that doesn't necessarily mean issue-based commentators, but people who have a slightly different perception of gardens, people who look at things through the, the sides of their eyes, people who are maybe a little bit heretical, that kind of person. Let me know. I will obviously spend the next week desperately refreshing my inbox searching for those recommendations. But I will also do some gardening. Next week, I think I can probably promise you some more planting. I'm going to be planting up some roses, I think. There's a new section of roses needed. And I'm going to be planting some more of the vinca. I'm also going to be replacing a few sections of, of dead and dying stuff. Though, as always, plans are subject to weather and change. We also need to get the tree surgeons in. There's a magnificent old beach that unfortunately has died. It's been killed by poor preparations in some building works. Building works that started well well before I was on site, but they have compacted the roots and put up temporary site offices in porter cabins right on the middle of the root pan. And the thing despite our best efforts despite trying to get things moved off is definitely dying so next week maybe we'll get that taken down probably not you know you know how it is phoning tree surgeons and they say oh yeah 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 no no we'll be around next week and then in two years time when you see them and say like, oh yeah yeah no no we're still we're hoping to get there next week and then in another six months time and oh, no, honestly honestly so we'll see don't, don't worry about it, though. That, this is my burden to carry, not yours. So I hope you have a long and carefree week filled with fiddling around with plants. And I hope that you end up with a, a lot of soil under your fingernails. Until next time, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.